are listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for August 2009. Today's episode is titled, Becoming Rich. Ah, becoming rich. It seems that everyone wants to be rich. We want to get ahead, to be able to do what we want to do when we want to do it, and how we want to do it. And most of all, we want the option of not having to work, right? The common view of success is defined as becoming rich and is inseparably coupled to money. The maxim is that if you have money, you are a success. When the obsession with money is so great that everything is compromised for it, we call it greed. The Bible warns us against greed, the excessive focus on accumulating money. Jesus made it clear that material assets do not define a person's life, his or her success, and significance. Here's your business tip. Don't succumb to the world's definition of success. Be vigilant about attacking greed in your own life and in the lives of your associates. And now Dr. Chester brings us the message, Becoming Rich. I want to talk to you today about uh, something that fathers spend a lot of time thinking about, and that's called money. You you spend a lot of time thinking about money, okay? And really want to talk about what it is to become rich and offer you a maybe a little different perspective than what you've thought about. And being that we're in a Christian context, you might surprise, not, we would not be surprised to know I'm not so much going to talk about money, although I'm going to start talking about money, and I'm going to end up talking about something else. Is that okay? Let's just ask ourselves some simple questions. If you were in the first service, just, you just be quiet, okay? And just allow the people to enjoy this part of it. Okay, what is the most expensive house? Anybody know? Take a guess. Most expensive house. Huh? Taj Mahal. Well, give me, a, give me a number. Give me dollars. Don't give me rubles or, you know, pounds. Give me dollars. Huh? A billion? No, not a billion, but... Ten million? No. I mean, Bill Gates' house is like 50 million. So you know that, don't you? Okay. So it's got to be over 50 million. Unless Bill Gates is the most expensive house. What do you think? Huh? 50 million? Do I hear 60? Do I hear 70? Come on. 100. All right. How about 110? Y'all are giving up. Okay. $165 million in California. Okay? It's a pretty good sized house, isn't it, huh? It's got more than one swimming pool. It's got a couple of bathrooms, too. All right. What is the most expensive car? Jaguar. Give me a give me a number. Huh? Hundred what? Hundred thirty-two thousand? How much? A million. I heard a million. What'd you say? How much? A million. Do I hear two million? How about anybody hit two million? Come on. You guys are not very good at auctions. You know? How about eight point seven? Huh? Now, this is a 1931. This is an old one. This is the clunker. Brought 8.7 million in 1930, in 1987, 22 years ago. What do you think that would bring today? You double that number? Okay, what, what's the highest paid, highest paid CEO? Are any of y'all, any of y'all offended by the pay that CEOs are making today? Anybody offended by that? <laughs> Huh? Feel like there's some disparity in all this? Huh? What's the highest CEO? 
Come on. No, give me, the, give me a name. Give me a name. Who is he? Who is he? Anybody? Give me a name or a number. Who? Bill Gates? No. Bill Gates is not the highest paid CEO. Warren Buffett is not the highest paid CEO. You guys know this guy. Some of you love this guy. Huh? <laughs> Ross Perot? <laughs> How about this guy right here? You know who he is? Who's an apple bug here? Who loves apple? Come on, there's a bunch of you guys that love apple. I know that. I find when people get into Apple computers, it's like they become fanatics. They're just unbelievable. If they became that fanatical about God, we'd change the world. Absolutely change the world. Huh? No, no, no. He doesn't. He makes he made $650 million over five years. Now, he, that, he understand his salary may be that, but all the bonuses and all the other stuff that he gets. That's, that's the number I came up with. All right, who's the, who's the richest man in the world? You should know this. This is easy. This, this is the throwaway question, huh? Oprah. Oprah? No, Oprah is not the richest man in the world. All right. You guys know this one. This is easy. Bill Gates. Yeah, that's a throwaway question. Everybody should know that one. All right. How about this? What's the most expensive Christmas present? All the ladies want to know this one. Huh? That car? Well, actually, it's a cheap Bugatti. It's only one point what? Eight million? One point seven million? That's a cheap Bugatti. You know, I know what you're saying. I want that eight point seven million dollar Bugatti, right? Okay. What is uh, most expensive stock? Huh? Berkshire Hathaway. Yes. It's actually on sale right now for only eighty-eight thousand a share. Okay, it was up to nearly 150,000 shares, so you can buy it now for 88,000 shares. It's a fire sale. You know, it's interesting. You know, when, when we have sales at stores, how the ladies flock and buy all the stuff? But when the stock market goes on sale, what everybody, what's everybody do? They run for the hills. Well, this is a sale here. You can get, 80, you can get the stock for 88,000 share right now. It's a deal. Don't you like deals? Highest paid athlete? Alice Rodriguez. Hey, Rod. Well, I'm sorry. You're wrong. <laughs> Highest paid athlete. Tiger Woods. That was easy. That should have been a no-brainer. In 2007, he made $88 million. Okay? Trump change. Most expensive yacht. Hmm? Hey, that's pretty close. Number I came up with was uh, 300 million for the yacht in Dubai. Does that tell you about where that money came from? <laughs> came from our our gas tanks. Filled up our gas tanks. That's how that's how they built that yacht. Well, this is all kind of fun to see how these see how how um, how money is spent around the world. And the whole point of this exercise is simply get you thinking a little bit about money, which is not too hard for us. We we think about money a lot. And do you know Scripture talks a lot about money? Jesus spent a lot of time talking about money. And why did he do that? Why do you think Jesus would spend time talking about money? What would be the point? Because it's a connection point with us. Because we spend a lot of time thinking and talking about money. So what I want to do 
is uh, just go, take you through a little parable today, one of Jesus' teaching on money, and really want to talk about what it means to become rich, biblically. Are you okay on that? You into this? Are you ready? Let me read the text to you, and then we'll, we'll break it down. Okay, this is Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 21. If you don't, I've got the NIV. If you don't have that, just uh, read off the screen with me. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell me, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me to judge or do it to, uh, me a judge or arbiter between you? Then he said to them, Watch out. You think that's a warning? You ought to pay attention. Watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And I submit to you, we don't really believe that statement. And we'll talk about that in a minute. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. Now notice he didn't say that the man produced the crop. The ground produced the crop. He thought to himself, now there's an internal conversation going on here. What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. I got all these assets here. What do I do? Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and I will build bigger ones. And then I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, would you all do stuff like that? Do you say things to yourself? Self? Okay. You have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. That sounds real good until God butts in here. But God. Don't you hate that? But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be for anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. Now please note that he's not saying there's anything wrong with money. What he's saying here, it's wrong when your focus is on money to the exclusion of God. The reality is money is a tool, and we're going to show that to you in the text in a minute. It's a tool, it's a resource that God uses to train us and prepare us for his purposes. So let's get into the text here. Let's look at the background first. If we backed up to the first part of Luke chapter 12, we would see that there was a gathering that happened here. This, uh, thousands of people came to Jesus and wanted to talk to him. Now, Jesus, you got to understand that Jesus didn't have really any standing in the religious community there. He wasn't really a leader. He wasn't a recognized leader. He wasn't, uh, didn't have a, quote, ministry as we think of it. He was just a man running around, touching people's lives and changing lives. Wouldn't that be a nice thing to do? Forget all the titles and all that. Just go around and touch people's lives and change their lives. Wouldn't that be nice? I mean, that's reality. That's what he did. So people are drawn to that reality. So they're coming to him by the thousands. So he's obviously very popular. And in the midst of all this, he's got his disciples. He kind of pulls them aside for a little private conversation before he addresses the crowd. And so in that private conversation, he starts talking about a number of things. The first thing he talks about is hypocrisy. You know, look out. The religious leaders, they're going to bring hypocrisy at you. Now, you know what hypocrisy is. Hypocrisy is acting. It's pretending. It's, being, it's saying you're something when you're not. 
It would be like me acting like I was a teenager. Okay? And I'm not. Do you agree I'm not a teenager? Y'all agree with that? Okay. I don't know why you were so quick to agree. You could be give me a little pushback here. But, you know, when you, when you pretend to be something you're not, you are a hypocrite. You're an actor. And so that's what the Pharisees were. The Pharisees were the religious leaders of that time. They ran around wanting to, to give pretense that they were worshipers of God, followers of God. In reality, they were just executing their own agenda. What I use the term, they, they basically were, were, were basically pagans with a Christian rapper. You hear what I'm saying there? Pagans with a Christian rapper? Basically internally driven by their own motives, but they wrapped it in a Christian veneer so it looked like you know, they were something that they weren't. Well, so his first warning to his, to his disciples is, watch out for this hypocrisy. He's obviously telling them, you don't want to do that, and these guys are dangerous. The religious leaders are always, the people that are hypocrites are always dangerous to anyone trying to walk with God. Then he goes into a discussion about uh, the fact that nothing will be hidden. It's very important that we know this. There's no such thing as secret. God sees everything and knows everything. He then talks about, you need to fear God, not man. Most of us fear man, not God. He said, you've got to fear, man, fear God, not man. Then he talks about the intentionality of God, how God is a personal God. He's so personal that he counts the hairs on your head. How many of you have been in a business where you take inventory? Anybody been done that? You know, we, we were a mechanical contractor. That was a family business that I was in for a while. Twice a year we took inventory. We counted everything. And there were just thousands and thousands of things that had to be counted, and it would just, it'd just drive you nuts for three days while you're doing all this. Well, why did you do it? You do it because you want to know where you are, because everything that you own is valuable to you. You want to know what you have in stock. Well, God takes stock of us. He, we are part of his inventory, his arsenal, his resources to execute his will on this planet. So it's, it's, so, it's so detailed that he counts the hairs on your head. Now, I know you're looking at me and say, that's real easy. Okay? For some of you, it's not so easy. But it's showing you the detail, the care and concern he has for you. God is a personal God, meaning you individually count to him. So that's one of the key things that Jesus is trying to tell his disciples. And then he talks about the importance of being courageous. And he warns about blasphemy. And he concludes about talking about persecution. Now, this had to be a strange conversation because here you have Jesus with all these people wanting to hear him, and I, if I'm one of his disciples, I'm listening to him talk, and I'm looking out there at this crowd, I'm saying, Jesus, you're popular. Why are you talking to us about persecution? He knows what's coming. They don't see it, which is very frequently the case with us. We don't see what's coming. God knows what's coming. And so this is the context. This is, is this a serious conversation you think God's having with it, or Jesus is having with the disciples? It's pretty serious, isn't it? Okay, and then somebody comes and interrupts. Have you ever had that happen? You got a serious conversation going, and here comes somebody out of the blue with a, you know, a totally different, different conversation, and it's like, you know, you're not paying attention to this context. Well, that's what happened here. So here comes this guy. He says, uh, teacher, tell my brother to, to divide the inheritance with me. Now, Jesus could have just, you know, said, hey, forget it, get out of here, or he could take advantage of this opportunity. What do you think he chose to do? Let's take advantage of this. Okay, we're going we're gonna to learn from this. So he replied, man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter between you? By that statement, what he's saying, he's saying, you may have a valid complaint. 
and that's okay. The proper context is to take it to the rabbis. In the Hebrew tradition, the oldest son got the inheritance. And if you think you deserve some of it, talk to the rabbis. He says, that's not my purview. I have not been appointed to do that. Now, Jesus is talking in his humanity. Certainly, as the son of God, he has all authority. But in his humanity, he knew his place. He did not try to presume a place that he was not assigned. Key point. Don't try to presume to be something that you've not been assigned to be. Can somebody hear that? I mean, that is a huge one. Jesus was very much a man under authority. Then he said to them, watch out. Big warning. This means heads up, wake up, sober up, pay attention. Be on your guard. This word guard here refers to pay attention, guard something very carefully. It may be life or death. This is a very serious matter. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Now, in the Greek text, the the term all kinds is not there. This is the translator's interpretation. It just says, be on your guard against greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. That word there is referring to a man's life is not defined by his possessions. Let me ask you a question. Is Bill Gates a success? Hmm? Is he a success? Why is he a success? Okay. A lot of people use the software, and he has a lot of money, right? And so we call that success. Is that right? That's how we define success? It's basically denominated in dollars. If somebody has made a lot of money, we typically say they're a success. That's not what this text says. This text says that a man's life does not consist. It's not defined by. Success and significance is not determined by the abundance of your possessions. And this is talking about material possessions. This word here is talking about money and assets and things like that. That's what it's talking about. So here, what he's saying here is you need to pay attention to what reality is. Now let me ask you this. Was Jesus a success? He was? You sure he was a success? Now do you know that Jesus died broke? Did you know that? Did you know that Jesus lived off the charity of women? Did you know that? The text in Luke that says that. Was he a success? Now we have to come up with a different definition, don't we? We can't define it in terms of dollars. Otherwise, we can't say Jesus is a success. This parable is designed to challenge our definition of success. It's a challenge to think beyond money. If all we're doing is thinking about money, that is greed. Because now we all want to be successful. If success is denominated in dollars, we're going to be pursuing money. And that's exactly what Jesus is trying to, to fight against. So let me just give you some examples of how, of how intense greed can be in our life and how deceptive it can be. Did you know that you can become an expert in greed? Did you know that? Greed is the focus on accumulation of material possessions and for your own agenda. You become an expert in greed when you continually focus that way. That's continually the way you live. You, th- you guys know who Bernie Madoff is. Who all knows who Bernie Madoff is? Okay, 
Would you say he's probably a man of full of greed? Yeah. Do you know how those Ponzi schemes get started? The Ponzi, you know, I've, I've done, done a good bit of reading on it. And what I have read is the person that's most deceived in the Ponzi scheme is the one running the scheme. Because they start out, most of them start out thinking, well, they get into a box. Something has gone wrong. And so they start borrowing Peter to pay for Paul. That's what you do. You, you take current investment and you give returns to prior investors. And that's because your investments didn't work out well. And so you got to figure out some way to keep your investors happy. So you get it, you get tempted to do that, to give now a false impression of reality. Well, it worked. Oh, okay. That wasn't too bad. Not getting it caught. No, nothing really bad about that. So now you're tempted to do it again. And then you're tempted to do it again. And pretty soon you've built a habit and you have become skilled at it because you have practiced it. See, that's what this text in 2 Peter is all about. This text in 2 Peter tells us, it's talking about false prophets. He says they have eyes full of adultery. They never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed. And that word there is gunmazo, which means to exercise vigorously. If you want to build your muscle memory to learn and train yourself to do something, don't you have to exercise? Don't you have to work out? I've got a little training tool up here for you. You know what this is? This is a golf club training tool. It's designed to help you learn how to play golf. And it does several things. If you want to play golf, you know you need to know how to play it properly. There is a proper way to play golf. So the first thing you have to do is you have to have the right grip. This thing, you see all the little funny bumps on there? You cannot just hold this thing any way you want. It doesn't work. You have to hold it according to the way the grip forces you to hold it. And when you do, you wind up holding the grip correctly. See, it's a training tool to teach me how to grip the club. Now, you'll notice also how it's, it's crooked here and how it's very heavily weighted out here. What that does is it forces me to release the club through the impact area like this, which is the proper way to hit a golf ball. Okay? And most people try to hold on like this. Okay? But this club fights you. It's really hard to hold on. If you swing this club at full spring, it's real hard to hold it like that. You can't do it. It forces you to release it. So it, it trains you in the proper way to swing a golf club. You see, that's what training is all about. It's, it's designed to train you in something. You can train yourself in good habits or you can train yourself in bad habits. You see, because the reality is practice doesn't make perfect. It makes permanent. So if you want to train yourself in good habits, you need to train yourself. You need to identify those good habits and train yourself. If, if you wanted to learn how to play golf and you came to me and asked me to help you, I would take you to the driving range and we would start working with stuff like this, training you in how to, how to stand up, how to grip the club, where to position the ball, and how to actually conduct the swing, how that, what that would look like. And you would practice that until you got enough skill in your muscles to where you could go to the golf club and actually have some level of success. Well, that's what these guys were doing. These experts of greed were taking that basic skill and using it illicitly and learning greed and inculcating greed so deeply in their life that they became experts at greed. We think of experts as a good thing. Experts are good if it's righteous. It is not good if it is sin. 
So what happens with greed is we've got to be very careful. We all have greed in us. And if we get into the pattern of practicing greed in our life, we become experts at this sin in our life. Does anybody want to be an expert at sin? Hopefully not. There's no fruit in being an expert of sin here. Furthermore, greed is idolatry. You remember the text that says you cannot worship God in money? Remember that? That's one of those texts that we don't really believe. You know, we don't want to believe that. And here's the, here's the way we justify it. I want to get rich so I can sow into kingdom enterprises. You heard that? You may have said that yourself. I want to make a bunch of money so I can tithe and give to the church. Or I want to help missionaries. Or I had a lady come to me here recently and she had inherited some money and, and she was all excited about helping these, you know, helping these, uh, these, this particular cause that she had a heart for. And I said, great. Okay, God's given these resources. Have you bothered to ask him why you have these resources? What do you think she said? No. She didn't bother to ask him. So I said, you're just presuming that you know how God wants you to use those resources. So it's a whole other line of thinking because we are not used to thinking biblically about money. We default to greed. We default to worshiping money. And the worship of money is idolatry, which is what Colossians 3 tells us. All right, so just real quickly, what are material possessions? Material possessions are basically tangible and intangible assets, money, real estate, businesses, antiques, etc. It can be intellectual property. It could be, if you have a company, it could be the people in your company. These are the material possessions. There's nothing wrong with these as long as they are used properly. What, 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 what makes these things wrong is when we are consumed by the greed of gathering these things for our own agenda. That's what makes them wrong. So how does God view material possessions? Let's just take a quick look at another text in Luke that illustrates how he views material possessions. Luke 16, verses 10 through 13. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will be dishonest with much. So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? You see what he's saying there? Worldly wealth is a training tool. Just like this golf club's a training tool. You cannot go on the golf course and play golf with this. It does not work. It's a training tool to help prepare you to go play the real game. That's what he says money is. Money is a training tool to teach you lessons of life so that you can handle true riches. There's a whole other level of wealth out there that we hardly know anything about because we get so consumed with our greed for money, our greed for power, our greed for influence, our greed for fun, our greed for comfort, our greed for pleasure. We think it's a right now to be comfortable. We think it's a right to be entertained. Everything's becoming a right in our country. We've got to get back to biblical thinking. If we're going to be people that, that live differently, how many of you want to live differently? Do you want to look differently? Okay, I want to look, I want to look differently. I don't want to look like the world. If I'm looking like the world, what's the point of Christianity? Dump Christianity, I'll just go live like the world. 
The reason that we are Christians is so we can look like Christ. That's why when you say you're a Christian, you're a follower of Christ, that immediately puts you at odds with the world. And so we've got to understand God's ways. And one of God's ways is how he views money. Money is a training tool. And reading on, finishing this text, and if you've not been trustworthy in handling someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? Now, this is a very convicting text. How do you handle property that's not yours? How many of you have rented before? Rented anything? Rented a car, rented an apartment, rented anything. How did you treat it? How did you treat it? Not very good? Most people don't treat it very good because they say it's not mine. My uh, younger daughter, when she was uh, early 20s, uh, she was living in Houston, and I went down to visit with her, and uh, I had bought her a very nice car. And so we're driving around. It's one of these uh, sports cars. You know, it's low to the ground. It's just, you know, barely off the ground, you know. So anyway, she's cruising around, you know, testing the speed limits. And she comes across, across these railroad tracks, flying across these railroad tracks, and, of course, on the other side of it, she bottoms out. And I, I'm a patient father, trying to be a patient father, but I finally have to say something. You know, I said, uh, that, that's a little reckless. She says, oh, don't worry, it's not my money. Well, it was my money. <laughs> you see, and I saw in her, her attitude. You know, if, if she didn't buy it, she wasn't going to worry about it. You see, that's exactly the way the world thinks. What we're called to do is start stewarding everything, knowing that God has assigned it to you to steward. Think about that. God owns it, and you've been assigned to steward it. Now how are you going to treat it? I lease vehicles frequently, uh, and I've always treated my lease vehicles like I owned them. <clears throat> I've had car dealers tell me, hey, say, look, you leased it for three years, just, you know, chase you all every six or eight months, and that's it. Don't do anything to it. You know what I do? I send it into the dealership every 5,000 miles and say, whatever is, whatever you recommend at 5,000 miles, do it. I just give them carte blanche to do it. I feel it's my responsibility to take care and steward that vehicle, even though I don't technically own it. You see the difference? Is anybody challenged with that? You guys don't want to hear that, I can tell. <laughs> but you need to start thinking. See, this is the way biblical truth is presented to us, and we don't think about it because we live like the world. All right, well, let's go ahead and get into the parable itself. And he told him this parable. The, the ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. This is a fascinating word. This is the word euphoria. What does that sound like to you? When you have euphoria, euphoria experience, it's a pretty happy experience in it. You're pretty happy, right? Thrilled, excited, okay? Well, this is, this is what happens when your field produces a crop. Now, obviously, this is a, set in the context of an agrarian metaphor, and most of us are not farmers, so we don't necessarily connect with this. But I do have clients that are farmers, and I've learned from them that farming is a tricky business. Sometimes the crop comes in, and sometimes it doesn't come in. And there's all kinds of reasons why, and the farmer frequently has very little control over any of it. Now, he's got to, he's got to steward his ground, he's got to plow it, he's got to, he's got to plant the seed, he needs to keep it watered and fertilized, etc., but... The growth is up to God. And so this is how it is with us in business. 
You may be an engineer, you may be a salesman, a teacher, it doesn't matter what you do. The favor of God needs to be on you if you're going to produce good fruit. How many of you have been in the workplace, worked really hard, and nothing happened? If I could throw up my feet, I'd throw up my feet. I've done that many times. You know, I, if we don't have the favor of God on us doing, we're doing what we're doing, we're not going to have success. So it's the ground that produces the good crop, not the man. He thought to himself, he goes into an internal conversation, and he's going to go into developing a plan. What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. I've got all these assets, this money or these resources. What am I going to do now? What do I do with this? Now, you know, he lied to himself. Did you see that? He said, I have no place. Or you might say he used hyperbole. Okay. He did have a place. He had barns, but the barns weren't big enough. So he says, oh, okay, here's what I'll do. I'll tear down these barns and build bigger barns. Then I'll have plenty of room to store my grain, my goods. And then I'm going to say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Now, what do we call that today? Huh? A caffeine attack. Retirement. That's what we call retirement, isn't it? Isn't retirement getting to the place where you can do what you want to do, when you want to do it, how you want to do it? Isn't that what it is? When you can exercise your will and you're not, no other will is opposed on you, imposed on you. It's whatever you want to do. You're tired of working for that boss that you don't like, that company that's, that cheats you and mistreats you. Tired of those competitors that are ruthless, cutthroat, tired of all that? You want to get out there where you can do your will, don't you? Come on, you can be honest. You know, we all work for this whole concept of retirement. Well, that's what this guy was all about. And it's not that there's anything wrong with retirement as such. As you get older, you do slow down, and you need to allow for that. It's the focus again. Whose will will you do? Jesus said, I only do what I see the Father doing. Remember that text in John 5? Can you imagine living like that? I only do what I see the Father doing. Now let me just give an example of how hard that probably was for Jesus. Remember the pool of Bethesda? Y'all familiar with that story? All these hundreds of people that are hurting around the pool... All of them need a touch, a healing touch from God. Jesus is sent by the Father to go touch one person. The most compassionate man that ever walked this planet had to walk through this sea of suffering to touch one person. Now, how, what do you think was going on inside of Jesus? Knowing he could touch every one of these people and heal every one of them. He could re totally relieve that suffering. Would you want to relieve that suffering? I mean, I would. I mean, my heart would just be going, jumping out of my, my chest, saying, let's just fix this. But Jesus wasn't assigned to fix it. He was assigned to touch one. That's how strategic, how obediently he lived. And he had to deal with those emotions that from time to time, I'm sure, haunted him and challenged him. But you see, that was a man living for the will of God, not for his own will. His idea of retirement was not take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. It was always about not my will, but thy will be done. Can we get challenged at that level to, we, to live like that? that? That to me is, 
That's the big jump in Christianity. If I can ever get to where it's no longer my will, but his will, I have made a huge transition, and then I'm going to look different. Because now I'm going to look like Jesus. That's the way he lived. But God said to him, this is the but God again. You know, anytime you, have, you see a but God, you know something's fixing to happen. It's going to be dangerous here. You fool. This word fool is Ephron. The only time this appears in the New Testament. Now, some of you may be aware there's a text in Matthew 5 where Jesus says, don't say fool. Remember that? Well, that word is not Ephron. It's moray. We get the term moron from that. Okay, it's a different word. This is the only time this particular word is used in the New Testament. And it's, here it's saying, you're acting without reason, rashly, without reflection and intelligence. And wait a minute, this guy sounds like a pretty bright guy, doesn't he? He's sitting down thinking about his life. You know, a lot of us don't plan for retirement. How many of you have made it sit down and consciously planned out a retirement plan? How many of you have done that? A few of you have done it. I find most people don't really do that. They just kind of rock along and whatever the 401k is and, you know, whatever the, you know, pension plan is, it is. They don't worry about it. But this guy's, you know, spending some time thinking about this and trying to develop a plan. So you have to commend him for that. The problem is his motive. His motive is what's wrong here. And anytime we have the wrong motive, we are going to get a but God in our life. Because God is not in to our agendas. He is into his agenda. It's not our will. It is his will that will be done. And so that's why the but God is a pay attention when you see the but God. You fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. You ever thought about your life? Think about this. Did you define when you were born? Anybody define when they were born? Nobody did that? Oh, okay. So you didn't make yourself. Is that what you're telling me? You didn't create yourself? Not you young people. Surely you created yourselves, didn't you? You didn't. You mean somebody else created you? That means somebody else may have something to say about your life? Do you think they may have decided to make you for a reason? There might be a purpose? Oh, that's kind of different. I gotta think about that. And, and then furthermore, have you thought about where you're gonna be, say, 200 years from now? Have you thought about that? Where are you gonna be 200 years from now? Probably not here. Okay? So, you say, okay, what's the point? I got a birth date, I got an end date, and in between, I'm breathing. Okay? The breath of life is there. And where does that breath of life come from? Do you create that? I mean, are you consciously managing your heart and your lungs, making things work? Okay, the blood vessels, everything, everything. You're not consciously doing that? Oh, we'll have to teach y'all how to do this. We know the tricks over here, okay? Here's the problem. See, we, we forget from whence we have come. We have all been created by God. And God creates with intent and purpose He creates with such intent and purpose, he's counted the hair on our head. That's how intentional he is. And so when you begin to realize, okay, everything happens for a reason, I need to get very 
specific about discerning what it is he's trying to do. And then I begin to discern his will, and then I can begin to do his will. You can never do his will until you discern his will. Left to ourselves, we're back to our will. And so we've got to begin to learn how do we discern the will of God. So this very night, your life will be demanded of you because God's decided to take it. He decided it's over. I created you, and I'm going to take you out. It's my choice. It's not your choice. And your job is to decide whether or not you are going to line up with me or not. That is your choice. Then he goes on to say, Then who will get what you've prepared? All this stuff that you've done, all this preparation, all this wonderful planning. He doesn't criticize the planning. He says, but who's going to get this? You've laid all this up for yourself, but you're not going to get it. So who's going to get it? What's the point? And then there's a punchline. This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. You see, when I store up things for myself, I am not storing up things for God. They are mutually exclusive. You hear that? Because we cannot worship God and money. As much as we want to do that, as much as we try to do that, we can't do it. We can only worship one or the other. And I think it's pretty clear from this text, there's no reward in worshiping money. It may look like it's a good thing, it may feel like it's a good thing, but in the eternal realm, in the eternal, the final analysis, when you die, your money stays here. Have you noticed that? My dad died last year, and he left me his estate to manage. He didn't take it with him. There are some days I wish he'd have taken it with him, okay? But he didn't take it with him. So I get to deal with it. And that's the reality. The end of your life, you got to think about, all right, what, what do I want to have accomplished? Specifically, how do I become rich toward God? I get the picture. Financial riches do not buy me anything in the long run. They might buy me momentary pleasure, momentary fun, seemingly momentary freedom, but they don't really buy me anything in the long run. So what am I going to do? How do I become rich toward God? How do I do that? Well, let me offer to you a suggestion on how you become rich toward God. Does anybody want to know how to be rich toward God? Okay, you're convinced that money's not going to make it? When, when you die, you can take however much money, money you want to heaven, and you can present it to St. Peter, and what do you think he's going to say? Huh? I'm sorry, I'm looking for your name in the book. Okay? Name's not in the book, I'm sorry. It doesn't matter how many piles of dollars you got here, it doesn't matter, because what matters is your name in the book. The, names, the people whose name is in the book are those that obey the will of God. That's how you become rich toward God. So how do we specifically do that in this life? What do we do? Well, may I suggest that Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, tells us how to do this. Scripture tells us how to live for God, how to become rich toward God. Now, we all know that salvation is by grace through faith. If you do not know Jesus Christ, this is the distinctive of Christianity. There is no other worldview on this planet. And by the way, everybody, every one of you has a worldview, and you're living out your worldview there's no other worldview that offers a God who died for you. Every other worldview requires you to die for your God. 
Your, your worldview, if you're a Christian, your God died for you so you wouldn't have to die. That's the distinctive of Christianity. And the way you come to Christianity is through the grace of God. He gives you the ability, the capacity to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's a gift from God. It is not based on anything you do so that you have no grounds for boasting. And then he tells you why you got saved. Why you accepted Christ. You ever thought about why am I saved? Has it ever occurred to you to ask that question, why am I saved? Let's see, why am I saved? Go to heaven, fire insurance. That's a good idea, right? Rather go to heaven than hell. That's a good thing. Uh, saved to have an easy life. You know, after all, if I'm working against God, he'll oppose me, so I need to be saved so my life will be easy. A lot of Christians think that, okay? Um, am I saved from, okay, just uh, maybe curses. Maybe there are curses out there that are working against me. Maybe that's why I need to get saved, okay? Oh, whatever con- reason you concoct, you've come, you might think that's why you're saved, but the Scripture tells you specifically why you're saved. Can we look at what Scripture says? He says, for, another clue. When you see the word for, pay attention. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You see what he's saying here? Is God made you for a reason. You are his workmanship. He formed you just the way he wanted you to be, so you could do what he's called you to do. There are no mistakes. Some of you may think, God made a big mistake when he made me. Man, I can't play this well, I can't do that well, I can't sing, I can't, you know, I can't do public speaking, or whatever it is you can't do. Hey, it's because you don't need to be able to do that. Whatever is in you is is what is put there by God intentionally so you can do what he's created you to do. He's that intentional. We are his workmanship. We reflect him. How many of you have built anything? Who's built anything here? Built a house? Built a model? Built something? Did that model reflect you? Reflect you, who you are? Your pride in how you did it? The detail that you went to? You see, whatever it is that we build reflects us. Well, so it is with God. Whatever he builds reflects him. His purpose, his intent, his quality, his values... We are, we represent what he values. And we are created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Now that word there, good works, we kind of think of that as, well, that's like a boy scout helping a lady cross the street. That's a good work, okay, or a good deed. No, that word is the Greek word, ergon. Ergon refers to all kinds of work. God has created you for a certain work. My wife happens to run a Christian private school. And she has incredible favor and success running the school because she has been called by God to do it. She's been equipped and prepared for that destiny. And as she does it, she is bearing great fruit. She's building up riches in the kingdom because she's obeying God and the will of God for her life. Everything about her has been shaped and prepared for that destiny. You see, that's how intentional God is. And that's what he's called us to do. And that's how you become rich. You become rich by doing what God created you to do. So if you do this, at the end of your life, you will be able to say what Jesus said when he defines success. 
How did Jesus define success? Did you ever ask that question? Was Bill Gates a success? Huh? Was he a success just because he had a bunch of money? Is that a sign of success? Who's read Psalm 73? Anybody read Psalm 73? I encourage you to read Psalm 73. You read that psalm and you will think, hmm, I'm not so sure money is a blessing. Because in that psalm, those rich people, it says they're on a slippery slope. They're going down the tubes. Now the psalmist in that psalm, I I wish we had time to explain it, but very quickly, the psalmist in that psalm is ticked like you and I are. You know why he's ticked? Because these rich people, they have the life of Riley. They have no problems, no issues, no difficulty. Here I am trying to be righteous, and I'm broke. I got all this suffering going on. I got all these difficulties in my life. Life is not easy for me, and these people have their life of Riley over here, and they're rejecting you, God, and I'm trying to walk with you. There's something wrong with this picture. Anybody feel that way? And God lets him go into his pity party for a while. And you know what? God, he does that. And then finally, you know, God kind of opens the sheets so you can see behind the curtain. You ever done that? Oh, okay, now I see. He says, this text says, ah, I saw. As the Lord revealed to me, they're on a slippery slope. This apparent success, as we define it in worldly terms, is temporary. It is on its way out because only lasting success comes from alignment with God. And so as we begin to ask ourselves what success is, and we look and see how Jesus defined it, a man who died broke, look how he defines success. Look at this text in John 17, verse 4. Speaking to the Father, he says, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Is that success? That is success right there. Jesus Christ is the model for success. Died broke, lived off the charity of women, but he did the will of the Father. That is riches. That's true riches. That's how you become rich, is you do the will of the Father. The seminar coming up in July is all about how to help you learn and discover the will of God for your life. The scripture gives us specific principles. One of them is called the C4 principle that you'll learn in the seminar. You'll see that in scripture And you'll see how to apply that principle to your life to discover the will of God for your life. And if you apply that well, then you'll be able to hear this when you go home to be with the Lord. Well done, good and faithful servant. Is there anything better to hear than that when it's over? When you've reached the end of the line, when God's decided to demand your life and say, okay, that's it, your life is over, what do you want to hear from him? Well done. There's nothing else that I want to hear but well done. So may God give you the grace to live a life so that you can say, as Jesus said, Father, I brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And then you will hear, well done. May God give you the grace to live that way. Thank you.